0: everyone, this is Amanda Borsaldan and welcome to Times Will Tell, the weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. This week in honor of Yom HaShoah, Israel's Holocaust Remembrance Day, we're speaking with Dr. Liat Sir Livni, who is a senior lecturer in Holocaust Film and Culture Studies at Sapir Academic College and the Open University. She is the author of five books and innumerable articles on the Holocaust in contemporary popular culture. We'll speak about the rampant use of Holocaust humor that has proliferated over the past 20 years in Israel, why it is flourishing, and what it symbolizes. We'll also discuss the increasing trend of the Zikaron Basalon, or Remembrance in the Living Room grassroots gatherings, and their role today, as well as recent headlines calling for Yom HaShoah to be turned into a fast day. Hi Liat, thank you so much for joining me. Where am I finding you today?
1: Well, you're finding me at home. As you know, there's no more uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day for us uh, researchers. It's Holocaust Remembrance Week. So I'm uh, pretty tied up with tons of lectures and so on. So you've caught me in between lectures. So here I am with you.
0: Okay. And where's home for you? Shoham. Shoham. Okay, great. In central Israel. So thank you again for joining me. And uh, the topic of our discussion is largely going to be the use of Holocaust humor in order to process the horror. So tell me a little bit about this subject and how you got interested in it yourself.
1: Okay, so first of all, obviously, it's a very sensitive and complex issue. And for many years, I as many others recoiled from this topic, I believe that Holocaust humor is um, bad for you. It's something that you shouldn't do. I'm third generation Holocaust survivors. I always thought, oh, my God, what would my grandfather would have thought if he would have seen this joke or that joke? But then I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, Hitler rants parodies on YouTube came up. And uh, if you're not familiar, uh, just go to YouTube and uh, write Hitler rants and you'll find tons and tons of comedy in which people took a scene from the German film uh, Downfall, which describes, it's a very serious film that describes the last day of Hitler in the bunker. It's a, a drama, a very serious drama. And what people did online on is they took a specific scene in which Hitler rants about his soldiers and they... Uh, used other titles other subtitles in different languages the film is in german and hitler is screaming in german so you can find uh, subtitles in spanish in english in polish and tons of other language in which hitler discussed completely other things uh, mundane things uh things like he doesn't have enough weed to smoke or he can't find a parking place in tel aviv and so on and i began uh, watching it and i screamed like crazy and i uh, and i Uh, laughed and laughed, and I felt so bad laughing, but I couldn't stop laughing because it was so, so funny. The most successful parody in Israel is Hitler is looking for a parking space in Tel Aviv, in which Hitler, of course, cannot find a parking space. And I began to wonder, how come me, a third-generation Holocaust survivor, I myself, who recall from this subject and think that it's degrading in in a way, laughs so much when I see uh, this parody and this is where I began to dive into the topic and it uh, turned out to be a book and then a series of uh, articles and I'm completely submerged in this topic because I think it's a very important topic for Jewish Israelis, uh, especially not only uh, descendants of Holocaust survivors but all of us Jewish Israelis who live in a society which is submerged in Holocaust awareness, a society which constantly lives in anxiety, in fear, in which the collective memory agents uh, politicize the Holocaust and use it many times uh, for different topics. And it's very interesting, very important for us, Jewish Israelis, to understand why do we laugh? Because right now, in the last two decades, you can safely say, that this is a phenomenon in Israel.
0: I think it's important to emphasize that we're not saying that it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's definitely a thing that is happening and is happening throughout Israel for sure. But humor was actually taking place during the Holocaust as well as a form of a resilience or or a way to cope with the horror of what was happening, correct?
1: Right. So first of all, uh, you're completely right. I'm not saying if it's good or bad. It's not my place I'm a cultural researcher and nobody asks me if it's good or bad. I'm interested in researching a phenomenon that happened in Israel. And this is a phenomenon, a very interesting one. And what people uh, usually don't know is that Holocaust humor did not begin in the last decades or after the Holocaust, but began in the Holocaust itself. There is vast research about humor as a defense mechanism during the Holocaust, the way it helped Jews to uh, survive and those who didn't survive, maybe to survive just another day and its importance in lifting up the spirits and bringing hope to people. This is a specific topic, but what I'm dealing with is not the way that uh, people dealt with it during the trauma, but why are we laughing after the trauma? Because most of those who create and consume Holocaust humor nowadays are not the survivors themselves. They are the descendants, they are the second generation, the third generation. And when I'm speaking about generations, I'm not talking only about biological descendants of Holocaust survivors, because in my opinion, in a society like Israel, in which we all learn about the Holocaust since kindergarten, and we talk about it almost daily, and I have tons and tons of examples of the way the Holocaust is integrated in our daily lives, in a society such as this, Um, second generation, third generation, even fourth generation are more of cultural terms than biological terms.
0: I 100% agree with you that Holocaust education is basically uh, fed to children here in Israel alongside their mother's milk even. It is so prevalent in the society. Now, do you think that Israelis are just so desensitized to the Holocaust that they're coming up with these jokes? Or is there a much deeper meaning behind them?
1: No, I think that the vast majority of the jokes are not degrading, they are not intended to ridicule the Holocaust or ridicule the survivors and their pain. I think Israel is a very special and unique society. First of all, what we've mentioned before is the education since kindergarten, and we're all aware of it. But more than that, uh, Israel is a special society in terms of Holocaust awareness because we live in a very specific security situation. In Israeli collective memory, the trauma of the Holocaust is not focused solely on events that occurred in the past. The sensitive relationship between Israel and the Arab nations, the the decade-long Jewish-Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the threat of annihilation, the continuing terrorist attacks and intifadas, all these have created an atmosphere of constant vigilance and ongoing anxiety. The ongoing uh, problematic security situation in Israel, which you cannot find in other Jewish communities in the world, is accompanied by politicization of the Holocaust. And it has caused the trauma of the Holocaust to be integrated within Israeli present day reality and replicated within it in a way that you cannot find in other places in the world.
0: Now, one of the articles that you've recently written is actually comparing how Israeli versus American sitcoms, situational comedies are using the Holocaust in their in their ethos essentially. Now, I remember growing up with a program called Hogan's Heroes. I don't know if you've heard of this program. It ran between 1965 to 1971 and it was Basically, a sitcom that was based in a Nazi German camp, and it was just a crazy, crazy thing to watch as a little girl growing up in North America in the 1970s and 1980s. Have you researched this particular program, and how does the American uh, use of the Holocaust compare with Israeli? <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, uh, we have searched more recent uh, comedies like Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm and so on. But when we talk about Holocaust humor in general, we must differentiate between Nazi humor and humor that touches upon the Holocaust. This is not the same thing, because we can all agree that we can laugh at Nazis. We should laugh at Nazis. We should portray them as a joke. This is something I think less sensitive. But when you go into the Holocaust itself and discuss the Holocaust and the survivors, this is a completely different thing. And what we have found that when you talk about American uh, sitcoms, contemporary American sitcoms, you can see that the Holocaust is a kind of a way of uh, waking up the demon or uh, poking the bear, meaning it's forbidden. It's a myth. So we're going to do it. We're going to use it. We're going to make fun of something that is Related or connected to the Holocaust, just because it's forbidden. I think, in a way, Israeli humor in sitcoms and in a TV show and Saturday and so on is much more mature and much more complicated. Again, because I believe that we live in a society which is unique in the terms of Holocaust awareness, and it's far. Beyond poking the bear it's far deeper we use the holocaust to discuss the problems in holocaust commemoration we use the holocaust to discuss other problems in society in a way israeli humor understands that we live in a society that looks upon almost everything through holocaust glasses this is why our humor or the way we use it in israel is much more uh, is much deeper and much more uh, intense. And I would like to give a specific example. I think this is the best example of how we use the Holocaust not only to discuss the Holocaust itself, but also other topics in society. Because this is the way we understand things. So a good example is the skit The Camp, which was on uh, the Saturday show It's a Wonderful Country in 2011. And in the the skit, the screenwriters used the Holocaust to criticize the idiocy of reality shows and Israelis to take an issue with the brutality of Israeli television. So in The Camp, I don't know if you've watched it and if you haven't, I highly recommend it. Actor Yuval Semo plays a casting director, and he uh, takes candidates which did not know that they were filmed for It's a Wonderful Country. They thought that they are uh, auditioning for a real reality show. And he talks to them about a completely invented format, uh, a German reality show called The Camp Only One Person Wins. And when he described this uh, uh, TV show to them, he made all the necessary connections to the Holocaust in order to show that people will stop at nothing in order to achieve their 15 minutes of glory. Um, The format resembles that of Survivor, and the big prize, he said, is six million new Israeli shekels, and he tells the prospective participants who come to audition that the participants will be divided into two tribes, the Germans and the Jews, and they need to compete against each other and the candidates have no problem with it. And they say that they will do everything in order to uh, remain on the show. They accept to get married, give birth, strike an old woman, throw their mothers out of the show if the mother was with them and so on. And then the casting agent explained them that the Germans are housed in a hotel and the Jews in a crumbling house and asked them, where do you want to be? And of course, they said they want to be with the Germans and so on. So the production team of It's a Wonderful Country said that the skit was intended to illustrate the spirits of our times with a drive for fame and to be on TV at any price trumps personal and national values. So you can see here how they take this topic of the Holocaust, but use it for something completely, completely different. This is a much deeper way of using Holocaust humor, black humor, self-deprecating humor to deal with with the Israeli identity.
0: It is such a black mirror of Israeli society or a portion of Israeli society, we shall say. You right. have also studied the use of social media and the use of Twitter, in, in particular in one essay that I happened to read, uh, Twitter jokes about Anne Frank. Can you dive into this, please?
1: Yeah, uh, this topic amazed me because I always knew that, they, that people used Uh, Holocaust humor and self-deprecating humor in order to describe their daily lives but they just didn't realize how much and when I dive into this topic of the Anne Frank jokes I've learned there is a mass um, uh, part on the internet on Twitter specifically in which Israelis describe their daily lives through Holocaust associations and especially Anna Frank associations, but many other associations as well. And it's amazing to see how, when you describe uh, a knock on the door, okay, a very loud knock on the door, and then the, the person tweets, it's either the um, pizza delivery or the Gestapo. Or uh, regarding Anna Frank, um, Something like, uh, my wife uh, invited over um, friends which I don't like. I hide in the attic feeling like Anna Frank. And this is the way young people nowadays describe their daily lives. This is, of course, humoristic, okay? And it's with the use of black humor. But it says something. It says a lot about the Jewish-Israeli identity and how the Holocaust is so integrated within our identity. And this brings me to the point of The paradox, because when we talk about Holocaust humor, Holocaust humor is, in a way, um, and we can discuss um, humor as a defense mechanism, it's some kind of unconscious way of fighting uh, collective memory agents who act out the Holocaust in Israel. This is a way of saying, I'm not going to give in to this manipulation. I'm not going to be in a state of constant fear. I'm going to hug the monster. I'm going to hug this Fear. I'm not gonna let it take over my life. But simultaneously, using Holocaust humor so much, and you can find it in many many aspects of social media, is doing the exact same thing. It is integrating the Holocaust even deeper into our daily lives. And this is why I refer to it as a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, this Holocaust humor function as an attempt to fight the acting out of the Holocaust, but on the other hand, it strengthens certain elements of acting out. And this is our situation today.
0: Now, when you're talking about social media, you were talking about younger people using the Holocaust humor in this way. Do you find that the use of Holocaust humor in general is something that people grow out of as they get older and have their own families and they see the value of life a little more perhaps? Or is it just so uh, prevalent in Israeli society right now that it could be at any age?
1: Well, um, there is a problem with the way uh, Holocaust survivors themselves treat Holocaust humor. There are those who love it and adore it. Uh, There is one survivor in particular which I love. His name is Danny Hanoch, and he's very, very famous for his Holocaust humor. This is his way of clinging on to life, and his jokes about the Holocaust as a survivor are better than anybody else's. But usually you can find it more among the younger generation and young you know is a very very wide concept and i'm talking about people from the ages of uh, 20 30 40 and so on i don't think that you grow out of it i think that you grow into it because as you grow older and you're very sure about your holocaust awareness um i don't think that you believe that when you use holocaust humor or black humor you degradate the Holocaust. This is such an integral part of your identity that you can, in a way, um, uh, understand it better or accept it better. I don't think that being a family man changes the way you deal with the Holocaust. I think it has to do a lot with growing up in Israel and uh, understanding that this is a big part of our identity and dealing with it in a different way. So even though people on the internet don't state there many times they don't stand their name or their age. Um, they, you can still see can use you can look at people that you know or know something about that we're talking about people from the ages of 20, 30, 40, and 50 plus who use Holocaust humor.
0: Now, you said that you initially recoiled from the topic and have grown into it yourself. Did you get any blowback, any rejection from your family, your particular family, from the people who have uh, the first generation survivor, the second generation survivor?
1: Well, this is very interesting. I think in Israel, people are much more open to the topic than in other Jewish communities in the world, in which the topic is still kind of a taboo. My family didn't care about it. They thought it was fine. My grandparents are not alive anymore. I'm not sure they would have approved. I don't know, but I cannot tell. And when I talk about this topic in Israel, and I lecture in many, many places, people usually laugh like crazy. They completely understand because they're in it. We live within it. We completely understand the context. But when I travel outside, and I'm not talking about academic conferences in which people understand it, but when I talk to Jewish communities in other places in the world, you can see people shy away from the topic. They don't like it. They even see it as a kind of a blasphemy. There was uh, one time when I was invited to London to uh, uh, give a talk and people told uh, said to the organizer, how dare you, how could you invite her when she talks about this topic and so on. So I think that Jewish communities around the world, which live in a different situation that we live here in Israel, have still a long way to go in order to understand the deep meaning of it. And again, my research discusses mainly Israel and the way it provides Jewish Israeli with a very important, uh, in my opinion, a very healthy defense mechanism in the society in which we live in.
0: It's interesting you said that about Britain, because when I announced the topic at our editorial meeting this week, my boss, who, is, uh, who was born in London, said, no, 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 it's too soon. Too soon. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they, uh, I, re- I really felt it. And again, there is a huge difference between our academic conferences in which people can deal with a topic and when you go outside to the societies. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every
0: single article on the site. Let's switch uh, gears a little bit and discuss another program that's very uh, prevalent in Israel and I would assume also throughout the diaspora, the Remembrance in the Living Room program, which is basically grassroots gatherings of a survivor or sometimes the child of the survivor who tells the very personal experience that this survivor went through. Tell me about it. Yeah, well,
1: I've written about Remembrance in the Living Room, and I'm uh, always in touch with them, with the organizers, and with the initiatives of this very important uh, project. I think it's one of the most important things that happened in Holocaust commemoration in the last decade. And the initiator, Adi Altshuler, said that she initiated this project when she herself, and she was in her 20s, she was at work, Uh, It was Holocaust Remembrance Day, and she completely forgot about it. She completely forgot about it. She remembered it only when she got in the car to drive home, and there were sad songs on the radio. So she remembered uh, it was Holocaust Remembrance Day, and then her mother called her up and asked her to come with her to some kind of ceremony, and they went together. And and, uh, details that she looked around, and she saw that everyone in the audience was uh, a decade or more older than her, And then she thought to herself, what about my generation? How are we going to remember it? Will my children remember it? If I'm the only one in her 20s who's sitting here, what will happen in the next generations? And so she decided to create this alternative uh, ceremony. She didn't even think about the a ceremony that will swipe Israel, and, and in a global perspective, she just in, uh, invited people to her living room in the next uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day, and they brought in a survivor who talked about her experiences in the Holocaust, and they sat, and they talked, and they ate, something that was completely forbidden in Holocaust uh, ceremonies, um, and they sang, and then the rumors spread, and then more and more uh, ceremonies like this in the living room appeared and in the last year there were more than, I believe, a million people in Israel and abroad conducting these ceremonies in living rooms, again, in Israel and abroad. And there are many times that there are very uh, complex living rooms, like uh, in Berlin there was a living room in which young Germans were uh, invited and sat down with young Israelis and they discussed what was going on, and so on. And nowadays, it's not only the survivors of the second generations who talk, but also the third generation who talk about their grandparents and so on. Uh, I myself um, did some lectures in uh, Remembrance in the Living Room. And I think in a way, um, she saved a Holocaust remembrance for the young generations. This, how important it is.
0: Wow, that's, that's fascinating. Recently, there are headlines, and these are headlines that pop up every few years of a movement, a petition to make Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, here in Israel, a fast day, a day in which people should refrain from eating and drinking. Do you have any thoughts on this movement?
1: Well, I think this movement can only be recommended or dealt with in specific parts of the Israeli society because secular people are not going to fast. So you take you divide Israeli society during Holocaust Remembrance Day and I think this is a very bad idea. I think in such a divided and conflicted society, we need specific days in which we can all put our differences aside and remember together and mourn together. And when a part of society has to fast and the other part doesn't, I don't know. Um, I'm also not so sure, again, I'm secular. I'm also not so sure that fasting makes you remember more. I don't think it's about fasting. I think it's about reading. I think it's about watching. I think it's about listening. And again, speaking as a secular woman, um, I I don't think it's going to improve or uh, deepen
0: Uh, holocaust memory i I too am a secular uh, woman and i mentioned it to one of my teenagers yesterday and he said what are they doing because those who were in the holocaust would have given anything to eat why are you refraining from eating davka purposefully on a day when we should be remembering their sacrifice just something to think about for sure
1: no, no, I, I completely agree, and I have to tell you that mentally, I think, <laughs> as someone who's researching the Holocaust, I think um, Holocaust Remembrance Day is the day in which I um, feel that I'm uh, hungry more than any other day of the year, so again, this fasting is not for me, this is completely mental, and I'm aware of it, but I've noticed it a couple of years ago that I'm so hungry on that day, so... It relates to what your teenager just
0: said. Yeah, sometimes they're very (laughs) perceptive. Very perceptive. (laughs) This relates to another topic which you deal with, which is the changing memory of the Holocaust in contemporary culture. Something that was not uh, acceptable in the 1950s when Holocaust uh, Remembrance Day was uh, actually founded is now being talked about, this idea of fasting. What else has changed over the decades
1: um, first of all, I think that if we want the young generations to remember, to know what was the Holocaust, what the Holocaust is about, to understand, understanding is impossible, but just knowing and remembering, we must embrace the new technologies and we must embrace the ways of the young generations to remember. Now, we are all aware of the fact that less and less people read book. Books and we are well aware of the fact that visual elements have great power within the young generations. And we must understand it, we must embrace it. We shouldn't shine from it and say, No, 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 Holocaust is just about reading and just about no, it's not. So if you can find Holocaust memory online, if people post on Instagram thinks they think about the Holocaust or the memory or Hitler. If you watch uh, Eva stories, if you watch uh, films about the Holocaust, everybody has their own way of remembering. And we mustn't decide that there is one way of remembering because it will not work. It will not work. And if we want this memory to last We have to understand it. So what's happening in the last uh, decades is social media entering more and more into this remembrance arena. You can find very serious uh, institutions like Yad Vashem, like the out with the museums. They all have Twitter accounts. They all have Instagram accounts. They all have, of course, Facebook accounts. But as you know, nowadays Facebook is for the elderly, as my teenagers say. And they Same. understand, <laughs> yeah, they understand that they must be there. They must because this is the place where young people hang out. This is their virtual sphere. This is where they learn. This is where they educate themselves. And I completely support it. And I think it's a very, very uh, important idea. And there was a, I heard a lecture by uh, some official in the Auschwitz-Birkenau Museum. And he said that they had, some years ago, they had a big and long discussion. Should they uh, uh, open an account on Instagram? It's not uh, such a quick um, thing to do. They had a, a very uh, heated discussion about this topic. Should they be on Instagram? And they have decided that they should. And I think it's very, very smart. They should be there because people, young people hang out there. Uh, they, they, First of all, they listen to influencers who talk about these things. Uh, they can go online and see things uh Places like the Anna Frank House, of course, have uh, social media all over. Uh, Another uh, very interesting new uh, project was in the Anna Frank House. They created a vlog uh, in which they took an actress who looks a bit like Anna Frank, and she plays Anna Frank as if she's doing a vlog nowadays she's hiding in the attic and she talks as if to the audience, as if she, like all other teenagers are doing a vlog, she's doing a vlog from the attic. So you can say it's uh, surreal, you can say that it's even grotesque, but maybe it works. Maybe people can relate, young people can relate to her story when they see her as a young teenage, their age, um, sitting in the attic and talking to them like they talk to their friends. Again, you can see it from different sides, I believe we should add it to the, um, I would say, classic memorial ways of remembering. It's not about deleting the former ways of remembering. It's about adding. And if you add this extra layer that everyone can find their own way of remembering, you want to read a book, read a book. You want to watch a film, watch a film. You want to go online, go online and watch the Anne Frank vlog. So this is not about deleting what happened before, but adding another very important layer, which talks in the technological uh, language of contemporary days.
0: Liad, thank you so much. I really appreciate all your thoughts. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Times Will Tell and a special thanks to TLV1 Studios for sound production help. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Times Will Tell on all podcast platforms.